I'm going to open up in prayer. God, I pray that you would continue to be active here. We've already felt you here today. We recognize your presence, whether we ask for it or not, but we want to ask. God, we ask you to be here to work in our hearts and our minds to draw us close to you and closer to each other as we dig into your word, as we explore what it is that you are calling us to and how we're supposed to live that out here on earth in this brokenness. In your name, amen. So what we are going to do today is jump right back into this sort of small books series uh, that we've been working on. So last week, actually two weeks ago, uh, we spent time in 2 John talking about two key principles, two sort of pillars uh, of the faith that John brings up, things that he feels are, are paramount or most important in terms of how we live and act and, and look as Christians. Uh, do people remember what those were? What those two things were? Truth and love. Truth and love. These things come up over and over and over again in 2 John. You can't stop talking about them. It actually gets confusing almost how these things seem to intertwine and intermix and build into each other through that letter. Uh, I had this sort of cyclone diagram that I showed that, that showed how these two ideas feed into one another and spur each other on and truth feeds into love and love feeds into truth. Uh, so that's what we addressed and what we talked about and kind of tried to begin to wrap our minds around uh, two weeks ago. And today what we're going to do is spend most of our time uh, focused in 3 John. Uh, but before I get there, I just want to touch on the second half of 2 John, uh, which we didn't get a chance to really look at uh, two weeks ago. And I think it's going to flow very nicely into what we're talking about today in 3 John. Uh, so you can turn there as, uh, as I'm kind of introducing here, if you like, the book of 2 John. Uh, right close to the end of the Bible, um, very short book, so it's easy to flip past, but it's 2 John, 3 John, Jude, Revelation, so it's right there at the end. Uh, and these two books, 2 and 3 John, they are very, very closely connected uh, thematically. In fact, if you map them out side by side, they're almost identical uh, in structure. Uh, in both of the books, John starts out referring to himself as the elder. He gives a short greeting and talks about the joy that he has that the receiver of the letter is walking in the truth, and then he talks about a problem that he sees in the church. And then they also both close almost identically, almost word for word, saying, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you, the friends, or in Second John, it's the children of your chosen sister. The friends send their greetings. And so you can sort of imagine... An elderly John, hearing about some of the issues that the church was having, scrawling down these two short letters quickly uh, to be delivered together with the idea that he was going to come to Ephesus and visit and connect in the near future and dig into these things a little bit more. Uh, and these two letters are very, very tightly linked. So what I want to do is to look at this second half of 2 John very quickly. And, uh, and if you want some additional context to this, just a reminder, our sermons are available on our website as well as our podcast. So if you want help getting access to those, if you'd like to figure out what it means to download or look up a podcast, if that's a world that you're not in, uh, feel free to talk to Mike or I. We can both help you get set up with that. And uh, it's a great resource to look at some of these past sermons, especially when we are in series like this. But what I'm going to do now is read to you uh, from the second half of 2 John. I'm going to start at verse 7. 
John says this, this is the problem in the church. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. So, here's the issue that John is addressing. There are deceivers walking around. There are people who are manipulating or twisting or running ahead of the gospel. And specifically what John is addressing here, we talked a bit about this, is this early sort of Christian cult of Gnosticism, which pushed this idea that Jesus was just a man. Maybe he was a vessel for this Messiah. Maybe the Messiah was, was in him in some way. But Jesus was a man. The Messiah was God. And the two of them were separate things. So they were not connected. These Gnostics wanted to separate the idea of the humanity of Jesus with the divinity of Christ. And John is harsh in his condemnation for these people. He plainly says, these people do not have God. In fact, he calls them the Antichrist. Literally someone who is anti-Christ, who is against Jesus. And John continues and says that anybody who, shares, who, who welcomes them shares in their wicked ways. If we support false prophets, if we support people who twist or distort the gospel, we are sharing in their wickedness. We're as bad as those that are spreading the message. And so this lady that John is writing to in 2 John is called very strongly to shut down these teachers when they come through to not invite them into their houses. And remember that this was a group of people who had church in their houses. And so it's not so much about don't have these people over for supper. It's more don't let these people speak or carry authority in your churches. Don't let these people twist your theology or your understanding of who Jesus was or what he has done for you. And so hearing that message in 2 John, if all we had was 2 John, it might be easy to overreact a little bit, to essentially shut the doors of the church, say we're not letting anyone in. No new ideas, no outside people. We're going to teach ourselves, we're going to stay here with ourselves, we're going to become as much of an island as possible in order to avoid corruption. And that's why it is so helpful that we have this third letter, third John, because it deals with the other side of the coin. It warns against the danger of becoming so scared of outsiders, or so sure of the truth, or so confident in ourselves that we shut out other people, that we close ourselves off from the world and from other believers. And so turn with me to 3 John, should be one page over, as we read it in its entirety. The elder, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell me about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. 
I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone, and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. So John is writing to encourage this Gaius to continue being hospitable to traveling missionaries, guys like Demetrius, who John speaks highly of. This is in spite of a man in church leadership named Diotrephes, who John accuses of being power-hungry, of shutting others out, of manipulating and slandering, all as a result of or out of his love of being first. This speaks to the other side of the issue in 2 John. In that letter, John is saying, don't let just anyone in. Be wary of who comes into your house and your church saying just anything about Jesus. But in this letter, John says, don't shut down and believe that you've got it all figured out. Don't try to grab power. Don't try to close doors. Let others in and allow yourself to be taught and to grow. So we can't let just anyone in to teach, but we also shouldn't shut our door to be corrupted by outside, uh, out of fear of being corrupted by outside influences. So somewhere in between these two things is where we're supposed to walk. Some of you might know this about me. Uh, some of you probably don't. Uh, I've had issues with balance uh, my whole life. In fact, my balance problems were bad enough that as a child I spent significant time at the uh, Children's Rehabilitation Center in Winnipeg. I had to work on simple tasks, things like tying my shoes, walking in a straight line, doing stairs, those sorts of things. I still actually have to think fairly carefully on a staircase. I have to be extra cautious when I'm walking on unstable surfaces, things like ice or sand or snow. I have a bit of trouble in boats or canoes, you can ask Mike about that. Uh, anything that gets too tippy. Uh, I don't have that intuitive sense that people have about how to adjust. They're just little things that I have to change. You'll actually notice, if you ever paid attention to me while I'm standing up on stage, if there's a prayer going on, I don't close my eyes. Because if I close my eyes while I'm standing, I get very disoriented very quickly. I remember uh, being terrified in kindergarten. At one point, they did a series of benchmark tests just to sort of track development. And I had to attempt to do certain things. Walk in a line, toe heel, toe heel, or uh, stand on one foot for a while. Although the, negative, or the, the testers themselves didn't give me negative feedback, they were very kind, I knew enough about myself to know that I had failed those tests. And I was certain that I was going to be held back that I was gonna be stuck in kindergarten for the rest of my life because I couldn't stand on one foot, that I'd be an 18-year-old falling over and stuck in kindergarten. Luckily, they let me into first grade. So the disorder doesn't really affect my day-to-day -day life, but everything just takes a little bit more care, a little bit more thought than maybe the average person. And so I'm aware of what it takes, consciously or subconsciously, for all of us to stay up on two feet, to stay balanced. And it could be a little bit exhausting. But in our spiritual lives, 
Balance can be exhausting too. Always having to readjust, always having to recommit, not too far this way, not too far that way, don't tip over here, walk back over there. And it seems like even in the larger church, there is this constant pendulum that we're experiencing. We're swinging from side to side. We go over to this place and it's too much judgment of God. It's judgment and rules. And so then we swing over here and it's free grace and it's wild and we need to control it. And so we swing back and it's this constant sort of cycle that we find ourselves in trying to find this sweet spot, trying to find balance. So what is the solution? Well, first, the bad news. In a broken world, in a world that exists in what we often speak about here is the in-between, this period of time where Jesus has conquered sin and death, but that conquering hasn't fully been realized, this time where sin is dead but still deadly. That's a phrase that Louis Giglio used a few months back in a Sunday school lesson that I loved. Dead but still deadly. It's been conquered, but it can still hurt us. In this part of our life here on earth, the balancing is never going to stop. It's never going to be automatic. We're always going to have to be expending a little bit of extra energy. We're always going to be wrestling with a spiritual condition that makes everything take a little more effort than it should. Everything be a little bit harder than it should. But the good news is this. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And we have a community of believers walking alongside us to support us as we follow that way. We're not in this alone. And as I think about our journey balancing together, I think of a simple truth that I was taught while my dad had to very patiently teach me how to ride a bike. And there's two parts to it. The first part is this. If you want to travel in the right direction, focus on where you're going, not what you want to avoid. The second part is this. It's easier to balance when you're moving forward. Sometimes in life we can get fixated on boundaries, on guardrails, on what can I do and what can I not do. Uh, every year in junior youth we have at least one youth event that's a tough questions Bible study. And so every year questions come back to me about boundaries. Is it okay to watch this movie or to play this video game or to listen to that radio station or to say these words or to hang out with these friends or to do this with my boyfriend or girlfriend? And, and the first part of my answer you'll be happy to hear is listen to your parents. <laughs> and the second part of my answer is this. Take all that energy that you're trying to spend figuring out where the lines are and direct it towards walking towards Jesus. I think of my own boys growing up, and the fact is this, I would much rather have somebody who makes mistakes sometimes, who steps over the line a little bit in what they watch or in who they hang out with, but is slowly and steadily walking towards Jesus, who is focused on that relationship, than somebody who knows exactly where all the boundaries are, who never makes a mistake, but is living a life filled with focus on rules, and regulations instead of relationship. So don't hear me say that my kids won't have rules or that there aren't going to be boundaries in places they grow up. I just care far, far more about where their focus is, where their aim is, than what specific mistakes they make along the way. So you can ask me that question again in 12 years and see if I still agree with myself. <laughs> but right now, with a three-year-old and a one-year-old, that is how I feel. So what are we focused on here? What's the aim? In the rest of the time that we have together, I want to focus quickly on the three people presented in this letter in 3 John and see what they teach us about where we should be aiming. So I want to start with the guy the letter is addressed to, Gaius. And what we see here is something we already looked at a bit in 2 John. 
is the need to walk in truth. So John says this in his introduction in verse 3. He says he has great joy in hearing that guys is continuing to walk in the truth. According to what we see here based on John's introduction, that's a trait that characterizes Gaius. And it's something that John celebrates. When we read John's letters over and over again, it seems there's nothing more important to him than people walking in the truth. John placed huge emphasis on truth. And maybe this was partially due to his age. He was at the tail end of a transition point in the church where the leadership was shifting away from the apostles who had worked directly with Jesus, who had witnessed his death and resurrection, shifting over to the second generation of leaders. And so it's this person who's not going to be around much longer, who doesn't have much time left, saying, remember these things, cling to these things. We, the apostles, aren't going to be with you a lot longer. Integrate these things into your life and walk with them. And John came by that focus on truth honestly. Truth is also a huge emphasis uh, in Jesus' own ministry. Jesus called himself the way, the truth, and the life. He says in the Gospel of John that you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And when on trial, Jesus tells Pilate, for this I have been born, for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So truth is important. But knowing the truth alone is not enough. We talked about this a little bit two weeks ago. John constantly emphasizes walking in the truth, being active in it, moving forward in it. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1, he warns about knowledge without love. He says, knowledge on its own puffs up. Love builds up. Paul knows like John that real truth isn't just understanding what is right or wrong. It's living those things out in love. For Gaius that looked like opening his home up to his brothers and sisters in Christ. For Philemon who we talked about three weeks ago, that looks like accepting his former runaway slave back as a brother and an equal in Christ. Sometimes when we feel that we have the truth, it's tempting to beat each other over the head with it, to become aggressive. Walking in truth, according to John, doesn't mean that we get to hold moral or intellectual or spiritual superiority over other people. Knowledge puffs us up, makes us believe that we're operating on a higher level, that we're somehow more valuable or more worthy or more important than others. Walking in truth turns us into servants, into people who demonstrate our loves in practical ways. It turns us into weed pickers. Knowledge of truth holds up a picket sign. It posts an angry tweet. It posts a Facebook message. Walking in truth opens the door to relationship and connection with other image bearers, with other people created and loved by God. We don't just sit there with the knowledge and look down on others. Truth drives us towards loving action, sacrifice, and servanthood. And that leads us nicely into our next point. We're going to look at Diotrephes. And what we're aiming at when we look at him is to be humble. John is not a big fan of this Diotrephes fellow. That's probably an understatement. But it's important to know what John doesn't call him. He doesn't say Diotrephes is a heretic. He's not afraid to call people out as heretics if they're distorting the gospel. And so Diotrephes was probably preaching the right things. He probably had his theology in line for the most part. He was probably a smart guy. He was probably a capable leader. The church had seen something in him. They'd put him into this position of leadership. And if he'd been going off on some cultish tangent like the Gnostics, John would have called him out on it. 
but he doesn't. So we can maybe assume that Diotrephes had the knowledge. He had a head full of truth. The issue wasn't the accuracy of his statements. The issue was his pride. The issue was how he grabbed for power, how he cared more about himself or his reputation than he cared about loving the people around him. John begins talking about him as Diotrephes who loved to be first. All of us know people who love to be first, don't we? All of us work with or work for or have family members or have people in our friend groups who love to be first, who love to get attention, who love to get noticed, who love to take credit for whatever they can. We live in a squeaky wheel gets the grease culture, in a me first culture or a selfie culture. And so we see this everywhere and man, it can be irritating. Even if a person is intelligent, even if they're skilled, if they're self-centered, if they believe that things should just get handed to them, if they believe that they deserve to control or to dominate or that they're better than other people, even if they're qualified for something, it's incredibly frustrating to see them get it. There is nothing worse than seeing someone like that get the royal treatment they think they deserve. And nothing more satisfying than seeing them get what they deserve passed up for that promotion, called out on the manipulation, taken from first to the back of the line. But then, of course, if I'm going to be honest with myself, and I think for many of us here, if we're honest with ourselves, we want that too, don't we? Maybe we're sneakier about it sometimes, but we want the recognition. We want the control. We want the biggest slice. I'm certainly not immune from wanting that treatment, from feeling like the world revolves around me sometimes. And so we need to be constantly reminding ourselves, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, the merciful, the peacemaker. We need to go back to that passage in Colossians that we're working on memorizing. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, we should clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, very little poisons a church or destabilizes a body more quickly than selfishness, than being puffed up, believing that you have the final answer, the final authority, that you somehow have cornered the market on truth, or that the knowledge of the law, that the information that you have in your head becomes more important than living that truth out in love. That's not to say that you can't have opinions. That's not to say you can't speak about what matters to you. That's not to say you shouldn't be contributing to the discussion or even that you can't push back on things that you disagree with. That's all a part of healthy church communication. But when you do that with a sense of entitlement, when you do that as somebody who loves to be first, well, with diatrophies, we see what that turns into. Spreading malicious nonsense, bullying, grabbing power, refusing to welcome others, and kicking people out who disagree with you. John says that a man like that is not someone to be followed. He's someone who should be called out, who should be exposed for that behavior. That's not how a church should look. Walking in truth looks like opening doors to others, not closing them. It looks more like serving than expecting to be served. And third, we have Demetrius. And from Demetrius, we learn to follow or to emulate godly examples in our lives. So John has celebrated guys who's walking in the truth, and he has put... Diotrephes in his place. And as he begins to close his letter, he says to guys, do not imitate what is evil, referring to Diotrephes, 
but what is good. Anyone who does good is from God. Anyone who does evil has not seen God. And then John holds up Demetrius, a traveling missionary, someone working with John or close enough that John can recommend him strongly. Demetrius, John says, is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. That is to say, his life lines up with Scripture. His life lines up with Jesus. John continues, we also speak well of him. And you know that our testimony is true. All of us, I hope, can think of godly men and women in our lives, people who walk in the truth, people who have lived out that combination of truth and love, who are well spoken of, whose lives line up with the truth itself. And John says, hold on to those people. Keep them in your lives. Take note of them. Use them. Our focus should ultimately be on Jesus, but we are also called to look at the lives of those around us in community. When I think about the children or the youth ministries that we run, think about Sunday school or youth programs or camp that's starting up in a week, uh, my philosophy of ministry, my belief regarding those programs is that, yes, it is important to have knowledge. It is important to have good, solid biblical teaching, to train in theology and our understanding of God, to build that part of ourselves. But far and away, the thing that I care most about is the connection between those kids and their spiritual mentors, counselors and sponsors and teachers, people that they can look up to, who can be Demetrius's in their lives, who can say like Paul does in 1 Corinthians, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Nobody is perfect. Everyone makes mistakes, Demetrius and Paul included, but helping each other find those people in your life, make those connections, is one of the best things that we can do in order to strengthen our own spiritual lives and the life of the church. And what's just as important as finding Demetrius's is being willing to be a Demetrius for others, allowing yourself to be humbly used in that way, making connections with other people in the church, being a mentor to the younger Christians around you, teaching a Sunday school class, or being a youth sponsor, or participating in small groups, or building relationship, or being open to uh, and welcome and hosp hospitable and bringing people into your home. These sorts of relationships are what build a body up, are what help us to work together in unity. So, as we seek to hit that balance properly, as we continue to stumble along, not letting in false teaching, but also being open to the larger Christian community, to learning and to growing and to expanding our understanding of God and how he works on earth, Let's not get too distracted by what we're not supposed to be doing, but instead let's keep focused on Jesus, the ultimate truth, the ultimate love, the ultimate example for us. Let us focus on where we are going together, not what we're avoiding, and let's keep moving forward. Amen?